What Happens in Las Vegas Can Make Quite an Impression. Best-selling author James Patterson helps us appreciate the people who make one of America's most extravagant tourist meccas work. I think it's a really fun book for people who think they know Vegas, who go there a lot, or people who avoid it because they don't think they like it, because it's so behind the scenes. Come along for a rollicking ride as one of today's top mystery writers helps us look behind the curtain in Las Vegas. Well, it's not a normal city, but let's not kid ourselves. For a different type of desert experience, how about glamping under the stars in the Sahara? For those of us that are bound by the city, I mean, there's nothing like laying out on the dunes with just, you know, the heavens above you. Tour guide Lucas Peters helps us find the ageless spirit of the desert in Morocco. There's something magic about it. There really is. Plus, discover the laid-back resort scene at the Bay of Kotor in Montenegro. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're finding two very different ways to experience the desert today on Travel with Rick Steves. James Patterson has begun a series of nonfiction profiles of the people around us with his breezy book called What Really Happens in Vegas. He tells us what's behind the razzle-dazzle of the Las Vegas he got to know in just a moment. And Lucas Peters recommends our options for venturing out into the Sahara Desert of Morocco. I'll also share some first impressions of an up-and-coming tourist zone in Montenegro, just down the coast from the busy resorts of Croatia. Behind the veneer of blitz and flashing billboards that make Las Vegas the entertainment capital of the world, there's a sizable metro area. It's about two million people that live in greater Las Vegas. And to make it work in what has become one of the fastest-growing metro areas in America, there's a lot going on. As one of America's top tourist draws, Vegas attracts nearly 40 million people a year. Author James Patterson wanted to get to know the kinds of people who live there and the gambles they've taken to make a life in Las Vegas. He introduces them to us and their sometimes unusual work in his book, What Really Happens in Vegas, True Stories of the People Who Make Vegas, Vegas. James, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Vegas, man, why not? Vegas, yeah. It's interesting because my mission as a travel writer is kind of to equip and inspire Americans to venture beyond typical American vacation meccas like Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. But you really found a way to make the city compelling and, and worth visiting. Well, I agree. I mean, I agree that what makes it work is is fascinating, and that's what this book is all about. I got drawn in, uh, actually, a friend of mine has a friend who's a whale, one of those people who will kind of guarantee that they will risk a million dollars or more. So I went out with my friend and this whale, and uh, we didn't have to pay for anything. I mean, we had this beautiful suite, each of us, and the food, and everything was free except for the gambling. Uh, and, And at the end of it, this whale... We were going home, and he said, yeah, I lost almost a million dollars, and man, I loved it. It was great. (laughs) So that kind of got me interested in maybe doing something about Vegas. I wondered how you knew so intimately what was going on, because I I would imagine you could afford to lose (laughs) a lot of money in Vegas, but I don't picture you as a whale. No, I'm not interested in throwing money (laughs) away. Gambling has never really been my thing. But, but, you know, Rick, you said exactly the right thing here in terms of I think it's a really fun book for people who, who think they know Vegas, who go there a yeah. lot and kind of like it, or people who avoid it because they don't think they like it, because it's so behind the scenes. Well, I kept thinking there's two Vegases, really. There's the Vegas for people who go down there and they're all excited because breakfast is included, and then there's uh-huh. people who go down uh-huh. there with money to burn. And not many of us will know what that's like, but you talked about the whales and you know the people who, who actually Vegas 
actively courts. I mean, if you're a yeah. if you're a huge oh, yeah. high roller, they'll send a jet to pick you up in Dubai and fly you in, won't they? Uh, yes, they will, <laughs> pretty much. But they're just, I mean, it's, there's so many things in this city that are fascinating. Even, I mean, one of the first, I think the first chapter actually has to do with how they get those fountains going in the morning. Yeah. And it's really fascinating. And then, and then you go to the airport and, you know, all of the clocks are Rolexes. <laughs> well, like your book says, um, what is it? The opening act is the airport. That, that's where it starts. Tell us about that experience when you fly in. All of a sudden you realize this is not just any airport and this is not just any city. Oh, you're there, man. You're, you're, as I said, you know, the, the clocks are Rolexes. You're, uh, you can gamble right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, almost. I'm surprised I don't have slot machines on the planes going <laughs> in there. But one of the things that, that's sort of a little freaky out there is when you go through any of the, the you know, the, the Wynn or any of uh, the Bellagio, et cetera, wherever you're going, it will lead you through the casino. Yeah. You're going to this restaurant. You will go through the casino. You're going to. You will go through the casino. It's just. It's amazing. What you know? What is it about? I mean, there's something about gambling. There's something about lady yeah. luck. There's something about you know going for broke. Did you think about that much as you go? Because it's a phenomenon. Well, sure it is. It's a, it's it, for some people. It's a great release, and they get to play. They get to fantasize. They get to play with something, you know, as though they have, you know. But but also that that notion of that they're going to strike it rich. Yeah. And people get it. You know, it's like th- there's no chance that such and such will ever get rich, except maybe, 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 maybe playing the slots, and all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. And and they're rich, and and that's appealing to to some people. Well, you wrote about the woman who won three hundred and two thousand dollars at the Wheel of Fortune, and and then everybody wanted to touch her to see if some of her luck uh-huh, would rub uh-huh. off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there is that. But you know, one of the things that that Mark and I I, I wrote it with the co-writer Mark Seal, and and one of the things that Mark and I agreed to do is we weren't going to editorialize. Right. We're just going to lay it out, and you can draw your own conclusions about whether this is insanity or wonderful fantasy. Or in doing the book, you know, we we, we did get through the history of things like the restaurants or the buildings or the fantasies. Yeah. You know, and and there used to be, you know, way back, uh, like when Coney Island, you know, initially uh, was built up. And here you had, you know, very, very poor people, you know, 10 people to a room in New York and whatever. And they would walk out all the way out to Coney Island, and and anything that anybody could imagine, they they'd say we and nobody was saying you can't do that legally or whatever. <laughs> so they would do these crazy things yeah. like like an elephant that would would dive into water from two hundred feet high or whatever they could imagine. They would say, "Yep, we can figure out how to do that," and they would do it. And people would just go out there and go, like, "Oh my God, have you? Where do you hear about what I saw at Coney Island?" And that's a little of the principle behind Vegas in terms of, you know, somebody goes, we're, we're going to build this, this wedding chapel, you know, and, and we're going to, you want to be married by Elvis, Elvis imitator? <laughs> we can do that. Hey, what do you want? Your you know, dream what, what's, your, what's your dream? Yeah, your dream or your nightmare? One of the two. I don't know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Patterson. He's often called the world's best-selling author. And he's a prolific author. His crime... He's not called it. He is. <laughs> he is the world's best-selling it. author. Uh, well, clearly prolific. Your crime and mystery and thriller novels are, are and, legion. And, and quality, and good quality besides <laughs> the prolific. And uh, and his new book is What Really Happens in Vegas. And if you want to get a bigger dose of James Patterson, check out his website. It's jamespatterson.com. So, James, I want to talk a little bit about this 
whale environment, this VIP yeah. environment. And then I want to get into the entertainment and what the rest of us can experience when we go there. But you hung out with a, a chauffeur, Raymond Torres, and apparently he can make anything happen. And if you're a multimillionaire coming into town ready to, to really go for broke, he can open every door. Tell us a little bit about Raymond Torres. Well, there are there are a lot of chauffeurs out there that can, you know, within reason, open some doors. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's always a thing, and and they can make things happen. And they and if you can afford it, it's a great thing to have somebody. What do you like? What kind of food do you like? What do you? What's your fantasy? What do you want to do here? What do you? What do you want tickets for? Anything as as long as it's legal, he can arrange it. Well, maybe even a little <laughs> bend the law a, l- a little bit. I'm not to get into Raymond. Yeah. Well, it's like having a guide. I mean, I'm a big fan of having a local guide. And in Vegas, yes. a local guide's going to get you into not the Louvre, but into the, the fanciest rooms and the, and the best gambling or the, the best entertainment or whatever. Yes. And, and, and they combine with, they know how to take advantage of the fact that Vegas knows who they can make a lot of money off of. And if you're a person who's willing to lose a million dollars and say, boy, that was fun, you're going to stay in a pretty what you described as a, I think, a gasp-worthy room. I mean, that room you described for the VIPs, mm-hmm. tell us what that was like. Generally, it, it's going to revolve around it's spectacular views of Vegas. And Vegas is kind of cool to look at. I mean, it's, yeah. it's spread out. It ha- you, it, you can see out into the desert. You know, it, So during the day, it, it can be kind of pretty. And at night, it's glittery. Uh, you know, they'll always have these incredible uh, bathrooms. They'll have, I mean, you know, you can, depending on, if you want, you can have... $40,000 a bottle of cognac in your room if, you, if you're really crazy. Our, our whale did. <laughs> uh, God bless. And I must say that for 40000 whatever the shot, would, whatever that comes down to, it's not worth you it. You tried it. I was off, I've <laughs> often me. wondered about that. How can We I... did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with these bottles of wine. You know, here's a $50,000 bottle of wine, and you're like, hey, well, if somebody's treating you, go, well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to taste yeah. it. That'd be fine. Yeah. And you go, eh. You know, to me, one of the worst things you want to hear about food, you, you try and, and you go, interesting. Nah, interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. not a good, that's not a good No, that's, that's not good at all. in my opinion. James Patterson holds a Guinness World Record for the number of best-selling books he's written. He's also a major benefactor of youth literacy and education. He's telling us how his book, What Really Happens in Vegas, profiles the people behind the dazzle and the glam of Las Vegas. There's that whole dimension of the city known as, I mean, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and it's known as Sin City. And a lot of that might seem a little old school or whatever, but it sounds like the gentlemen's clubs and and the prostitution and so on is still going strong. Yeah, I think it's changed a lot. Well, it changed a lot for a while because they went into this period when they tried to, and not just tried, but delivered on some level to make Vegas more of of a treat for families. Right. And so they really calmed the place down a lot, classed up its act a bit. Uh, The gentlemen's clubs would still be around, but but it was, you know, it wasn't the way it had been. You wouldn't see a lot of people, uh, women or men or whatever, roaming the strip, offering their wares. But it's still there. But, you know, it's, you know, in so many of the areas which I just found, you know, I love restaurants. And and if you if you look at you mentioned like the free breakfast and stuff and. That's sort of the old Hollywood or the, you know, but now there are so many uh, really good restaurants there. And it didn't used to be that way, but it, it's evolved. It's evolved. I mean, you'll get, 
you know, just wonderful Italian restaurants that, that weren't there 15 years ago, that kind of restaurant. You know, one one thing you wrote about, James, was um, in Vegas, uh, if you have beautiful buildings, they need to be staffed by beautiful people. or that, That's the ethic in Vegas. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah, like yeah. The, you said the tabernacle of worship is the gym. Talk a bit about that, please. Well, I think that's kind of true of a lot of major cities now and young people. They um, they want to look good. Ah. And and that's a part of the allure in, in Vegas that you're gonna you know, the waiters, the waitresses, they're gonna they're gonna be, you know, good looking, the the maitre d', et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One of the things they do pretty well for the most part is make you feel important. Uh, and people like that. People want to feel important when they go there. Oh, there's blackjack and folder and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a nerve steel. Viva! It's hard to call what really happens in Vegas James Patterson's latest book because he releases so many new titles every month. We have more with James on the spectacle of Las Vegas just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Later, we'll look at our options for drinking in the stars under a clear night sky from a sand dune in the Sahara Desert. Tips for slowing down in the wilds of the Sahara Desert in North Africa and the emerging coastal resorts of the Balkans. That's in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, James Patterson teamed up with Vanity Fair editor Mark Seal to profile the people who make Las Vegas, Nevada work as the ultimate fantasy destination. Their book is What Really Happens in Vegas. So, James, when we're thinking about Vegas, you mentioned they're making it a little uh, more family-oriented and so on, and certainly people go there for more than just the gambling. And the entertainment, I mean, it's amazing, fabulous entertainment there. Yeah. You have your your various levels of uh, Cirque du Soleil. You know, there's four or five of those different. And they're all, yeah, and they're all... They're, they're similar in terms of them being acrobatics that you've never... It's, just, it's, it's wonderful. And I think it is a family entertainment, uh, those things. Right. And, and, and those are great. And then the various entertainers, which range from Celine Dion to uh, some people maybe you don't necessarily want to see. Well, well, think of the names that have really made it because of Vegas. I mean, as soon as you leave the airport, you're on Wayne Newton Boulevard, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, right, 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 right. I think Wayne is still, I don't, I, to my knowledge, I think he's still huh. still kicking. But he's like still resident singing, entertainer for decades. And uh, uh-huh, uh, you uh-huh. wrote about how Elvis was earning a million dollars a month back in the 70s. That was that was pretty impressive in the 70s. It's, it's still decent money, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and the Rat Pack is so famous there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, it was a, a funny story, but I, I, I like to golf and... Uh, this is way back, but somebody ran into Sammy Davis Jr., and he was coming off the course. And they said, Sammy, how'd you do out there? And he said, oh, I had an 83. And then the guy saw the pro a little later, and he said, Sammy must be pretty good. It's a pretty tough course. And the pro said, no, Sammy plays till he gets to 83, and then he comes in. (laughs) (laughs) So he shoots 83 pretty much every day. Oh, there you go. Well, another dimension of the city, which I find interesting, is Magic. You always hear people talking about magic shows yeah. in Vegas, and uh, it's kind of surprising to me. What What do you think it is about magic in a in a gambling capital? Uh, <laughs> well, the, the whole town is about magic. It really is. Isn't it's it? about yeah. smoke and mirrors and and making you believe things that you probably couldn't shouldn't <laughs> believe. And and the town is also very visual, 
everything about it. I mean, even the buildings and the billboards, you know, and the desert as the background. But, you know, magic is very visual. And I think people are in the mood for it when they go out there. And there's there's a dimension that, that you focused on in the book that I thought was interesting in what really happens in Vegas. There's this idea of death-defying stunts. The free fall yeah, is a yeah, big yeah. deal. <laughs> oh, my God, the strat. I, there's no way that I would ever... I, I'm too <laughs> old to do, do that, that kind I was of wondering, thing. no, no. I, oh, my I God, do no, 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 but no. This, I don't, I'm not big on heights. This guy jump, what is yeah. it, 1,100 feet? And uh, yeah. it's just plummeting. I don't get the attraction of that, but I guess people love that adrenaline thing and yeah. death-defying when you know pretty much you're probably not going to crash to the pavement. Well, Evil Knievel, no. Evil Knievel was a big deal in Vegas. He yes, he well, he was he was built for Vegas. Was, no, so this is risk. <laughs> it's part of risk. It's part of that adrenaline. It's part of that fantasy. It it probably gets people stoked up to step into that casino and 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 go for broke. Yeah. Well, that's the risk thing, too. I mean, uh, I, I used to like my thing on gambling. If I was going to do anything, I'd put like three or four hundred dollars in my pocket. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I got. And and for me, I'm just this wuss. But if I got up one hundred and fifty dollars, I walk away. Right. And if I got down one hundred and twenty five, I probably walk away, too. But but you'll watch people at these tables and they're betting, you know, two, three, four, five hundred dollars a hand and whatever. Yeah. And you look at them and you go, these people clearly don't have big money. No. But apparently they'll come there and they'll have five grand, 10 grand or whatever, and they're willing to lose it, which is stunning to me. Well, that's the whole lost wages thing. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah. going to lost yeah. wages. That, that's kind of sad. You know, the other thing that's a little sad about the place is the casinos, there are a lot of things in there which are kind of upbeat and fun and whatever. Casinos are not one of them. No. They're quiet. The people don't, uh, craps tables are fun. Yeah. But most of it, it, people, they look dejected and, you know, they, they always seem like they're like one step away from like, I don't know if I want to be on the earth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, I, I get in a, in a very interesting, um, not a funk, but a thought provoking mood where I'm looking at people and wondering what is their story? Here's a person that's sitting alone at a slot machine all day long. They don't have a lot of money. Yeah. And they're spending yeah. a lot of money. And there's something going on there, James. I agree. I agree. I do find it, part of it is exhilarating and part of it is depressing. You know, there's a yeah. soundtrack. When you walk through a casino, there's a soundtrack, yeah, a yeah. white noise uh, of desperation or a white noise. And you'll hear of... those bells. you hear those bells, <laughs> which are suggesting that people are winning a lot of money. That's right. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, 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 This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Patterson. And his book is what, well, he's got countless books, but the book we're featuring today is What Really Happens in Vegas. What Really Happens in Vegas. I, I'm not a huge Vegas person, but, you know, in rereading the book, it's almost like, oh, I want to go there again, you know? Yeah. And one thing about travel for me is the people you meet. I mean, meeting mm-hmm. people carbonates the experience, and to me, that's the mark of a good trip. And you can meet people anywhere you go. Um, and yeah. with your book, you really, I think, enlivened the whole culture of Vegas by showcasing or shining a light on some quirky individuals. I mean, Charlotte Richards, what, she's like deep into her 80s, and didn't she innovate or invent the drive-in wedding? Yes. Tell us yeah, about yeah, yeah. her. No, that chapter is fun. Uh, you know, she had an idea. She she threw her whole, threw everything that she had into it, and she let her imagination go wild. And, and, and just with that spirit of what do you want? What do you, how, do you, how do you want to get married? Well, how do you want it to yeah. work? Well, here we have a lot of ideas for you. And you always hear these stories about people, and she had a bunch of them. 
about uh, uh, just people go out there not planning to get married. Right. And the next thing they knew, they were married, you know, and, and he, they make it easy out there. So it's a well, dangerous and, and, place. And she really believed she found her niche and she was contributing and making people yeah. happy. And she was the wedding queen of the West. Well, they, they certainly were happy when they were getting married. I don't know what the next day is. When they, when they sobered like, up, but, what, what was the thinking? You know, James, one time I, I uh, was giving a lecture at the University of Vegas, and a professor gave me a tour of the city, reminding me there's real people uh, off the Strip, and it's a, it's a normal city. And it was well, it's not a normal city. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> it's, a, but <laughs> it's a city. It's a city. There are people outside of the not, city. Yeah, yes. I w- it was a fascinating kind of social commentary on, on, on the role that Vegas provides to our society. And it was a, really a very fascinating experience to be with him. What are some takeaways that you have on why is there Vegas and, and why is it so popular? And, and um, you know, what does it say about humanity? Well, uh, look, I, I obviously, you know, have an imagination and love to create things that are haven't been created before, hopefully, or tell stories that haven't been told and tell them in a way that are stimulating. And it ranges from the novels to some of the nonfiction. And and with the nonfiction, what I've always tried to do is at the end of it, people would go, I understand something better that I didn't understand before. Yeah. You know, I did I do a series with Matt, Matt Eversman, who was Matt was the actual sergeant who was uh, portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh-huh. He's a great interviewer. And so we did one walk in my combat boots. And our mission was, if you have been in combat, you would say Eversman and Patterson got it right. And if you are one of these people that likes to BS about things that you don't really understand, you would say, I didn't really understand the military till I read that book. Mm-hmm. Same thing with this, well, with my autobiography, it's the same thing. People would have certain assumptions about who I am, whatever. Well, they're wrong. It's not what it is. And my autobiography is just story after story after story. It's not the usual kind of thing. Well, let's talk about Newburgh, New York. Right. Who cares? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and same with the Vegas book. Yeah. It's getting into this thing and you understand something, I, hopefully, I think in an entertaining way, uh, that you didn't understand before. And you go, okay, well, that, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, even if you've been there a few times. I think even people who've been there half a dozen times would go, I'm surprised by this book. No, you read your book and you, you have a much better understanding of the workings of Vegas in so many ways because it's such a multidimensional experience and city. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with, I think, the most popular storyteller of our time. That's a fair thing to say, James Patterson. He sold over 200 million books, and he's the creator of unforgettable characters and series, including Alex Cross, Women's Murder Club, Jane F. And Smith, and Maximum Ride. He's written about the Kennedys, John Lennon, and Princess Diana, and he's co-authored number one best-selling novels with Bill Clinton and Dolly Parton and told the story of his own life in James Patterson by James Patterson. But, you know, I would imagine he's a traveler as well as a prolific writer. James, we know about James Patterson, the writer, but what about the traveler? Do you like to travel? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 I've spent a lot of time going around the world. There's not a lot of places that I haven't been. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks in Kenya, and I love that was actually one of my favorite trips. I love that trip. You know, I would imagine as prolific as you are, you must always be kind of scouting, working, taking notes. Do you get inspiration in your travels? 
Yeah, my stupid imagination is so big that I, I don't need it. But yeah, sure. You know, there must be interesting characters you run into. Well, I'll give you, uh, this isn't an interesting character thing as much as just a, in terms of my crazy imagination. I was touring with Mike Lupica, is a famous sports writer, and we've done a couple of books together now. So we went on a book tour, and we were down on the Jersey Shore, and, it was, and, and my wife was there with us, and it was a miserable day. It was raining and wind and da-da-da-da. And they said, well, let's walk from this little hotel, and we'll walk down to the, uh, over to the beach. So we're walking, and I get about 50 yards, and I said, screw this. It's awful out here. I'm just going to go back. And I'm walking back to this little hotel we're staying at. And this little guy, little older guy is riding on a bicycle. And one word went into my head, just watching this little guy. And I went inside and I wrote a five-page outline for a novel just based on this little guy. And it just, boom, and off I was. And, uh, you know, I now have an outline that's 100 chapters just from that little goofy thing. So, you know, I could sit there and, and listen to the show and think about travel and do something, you know, kind of, or yeah. based on your life, you know, whatever. So, you know, that's the kind of fascination I had about, about stuff in terms of going, uh, you know, around the world. And, and you obviously um, like other people more than I do, but uh, I, I like some of them. <laughs> when we went to Africa, it was you know, one of these things where they would put you on a, a little you know, maybe four or six people in a, in a van. It was pretty safe, but yeah. it was fascinating. Yeah. And, and you'd go and, you know, okay, well, here are the, the, the giraffes and the elephants and whatever. And the, the, the wild dogs are the scariest thing there. They're, I mean, they're just so vicious. The dogs are straight up from hell. <laughs> um, but in the, in the bus, we, did, we made two really great friends. And it turned out their real work was they, had, uh, they worked for a very wealthy couple, and they basically took care of the yacht. And one of them was the captain, and one was the chef. Every year we would go and see them because they would have a little downtime, and, and so we would stay on the yacht with them when, when the owners weren't away. Right. You know, so you you do meet people that are you know kind of fun and, and interesting and whatever. Yeah. But James, when you think about getting out of cultures, what what is your yeah. take on culture shock? Is that something you you're attracted to, or does is that something you try to avoid? I, I would say I'm interested in it. And then it's a question of how much work is it to really get into it? You know, as I said, I did. I love Kenya. I love that trip because they're just, you know, you, you go from the, the teeming big city thing, which are like nothing that you that I had experienced right. before. And, and I, I ran into the same thing a little bit in Bangkok, just in terms of just monster, unbelievably noisy just yeah. activity, just overwhelming. But aren't you drawn into that to go just like, this is a river of humanity that I've never paddled down? Well, yeah, so I, not to draw into it. I'm there. I don't <laughs> have to be drawn into it. I'm in it. <laughs> I'm part of the river. I'm in the river, man. Yeah, and it, it, it does. And I, you know, I have written, I actually wrote an Alice Cross book set in Africa probably because of, there you go. of, of that trip. Uh, it wasn't in Kenya, but I was I, I, I was curious about more curious about Africa than I had been. You, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Well, you don't necessarily have to get out, but you have to figure out a way. It depends on the person. Right. Some people need to get out of their comfort zone. Some people just need a way to stay comfortable. But but one of the, we talked a little bit before about the notion of somebody to guide, maybe somebody. That's how I went right. in Hong Kong. I happened to have friends there. So they took us around for about four days. 
uh, which was spectacular. You know, I, it seems like when you've had friends, when you've had locals to give you an inside track, you get double the experience rather than just being yeah. overwhelmed. Oh, oh, at least double. The, yes, exactly. So that that's a, a really important thing. The extravagance of Las Vegas may make it the most uniquely American tourist destination of them all. It's the setting for James Patterson's true stories behind the mirage in What Really Happens in Vegas. His website is jamespatterson.com. Have you ever considered how, in the old days, people used to say bon voyage, and now they say have a safe trip? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, that's interesting. Uh-huh. You know, what, what do you think's with that? Oh, we're just running scared here, We're unfortunately. And some, some of it, is, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, just, I, I don't know that if we've ever had, or at least been a conscious time, when there's so many things that actually are relatively scary, whether, whether you believe or don't believe in global warming, I do believe in it. But right. that's a major, significant, really frightening thing, the state of the world. You know, we're in a, in a period right now where there are wars again. Uh, you know, things that happen in some of the bigger cities, the robberies, and, you know, they're up and violence is up. So, yeah, I, and I think it, it does affect us. And the fact that people will sit there and watch the news all day, which to me is toxic, but half an hour within reason is plenty to catch up. Now, yeah. there may be things you want to read a lot about, a certain situation right. or whatever, and that's that's certainly up to you. But at any rate, so I, but, but I think, you know, in, in Bon Voyage versus Have a Safe Trip, I mean, certainly the actual trips are safer than they, they were. I mean, the, the planes, those things are safer than oh, yeah. they were. So, you know, one of the things, you can have this for, for, for free, Rick, but I think there's an opportunity for people to do videos just our videos where you could really give people a sense of, okay, here's some of the stuff very quickly that you're going to see in Paris. Here's some of the stuff. I mean, really give you a, a, a real feeling where you go like, yeah, you know, I'd like to go there. You know what I mean? You know, I'd like to do that. You could help me maybe. <laughs> I won't help you, but I'm, but I'm, but I give it to you. Okay, and you can maybe give me a piece when yeah. you're a billionaire, but you know, oh yeah, Jim told me that. And here's, here's a hundred dollars for you, Jim. You know, Jim, you are, clearly the most prolific writer I've ever had the opportunity to, to have on the show. And I've never thought of you as a travel... Talk about the quality of my prose, <laughs> will you please? I've, I've <laughs> never thought of you as a travel writer, but I've got your book, What Really Happens in Vegas. And to me, that could be a guidebook to Vegas. You know, it's just, you've taken one city and uncovered surprising dimensions to that city. In a way, I think that kind of information, you were talking about having an insight or having a guide, everywhere we travel... You know, there's more there than meets the eye. Yeah, yeah. You would, you'll never. You re, if you read that book, you will never think about Vegas the same way again. Whether whether you're somebody that goes there all the time or somebody who rarely or or has never gone there. Well, then I'll give you a tip. You could write a book like your Las Vegas book to the world's ten greatest cities, and uncover the same unheralded dimensions uh-huh. that would that would really carbonate everybody's experience when they went there with your book in hand. And Rick, if I do that, I'm going to send you $100. <laughs> and then I'll take that to Vegas and throw it away. <laughs> Perfect. James Patterson, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a delight to talk with you. And thanks for all the, the creativity you bring to our world through your writing. Oh, thank you. This is very stimulating. Really good. We'll take time to appreciate the starlight in the Sahara and even the embroidery at the Bay of Kotor. 
That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. As I discovered on a recent trip there, it's easy to be dazzled by Morocco. In contrast to the glitz and round-the-clock action of Las Vegas, the serenity of an exquisitely tiled courtyard in a Moroccan Riyadh can delight your senses, as well as give you an escape from the stifling heat. A deadly earthquake in September 2023 devastated parts of Marrakesh and a number of villages in the High Atlas Mountains. Thankfully, most of the country was unaffected and tourist attractions have been reopened, but they're in need of visitors. Many Moroccans supported their king's decision to turn down relief aid offered by the U.S. and French governments in order to demonstrate their own ability to recover. Lucas Peters writes the Moon Guidebooks to Morocco and directs a tour company there. He joins us on Travel with Rick Steves with tips for venturing into the vast, wild spaces of the Sahara Desert. Hey, thanks for having me back, Rick. Now, Lucas, first of all, you're a a traveler who wanted to be kind of a digital nomad. You thought you'd spend a couple seasons in uh, Morocco. And what happened? Because you've been there now for more than a decade. Man, I fell in love with the girl, fell in love with the country. It's the old story. (laughs) There's a lot of um, expat Americans that fell in love with one dimension of Morocco or the other. They're there and seem to be living happily ever after. How how is it? You're raising, you've got, uh, it sounds like a wonderful Moroccan wife and, and two young children. How is that for an American expat? I mean, it's not without its complications, but I mean, the daily, I really enjoy it here. You know, I mean, it's great food, really nice people, very hospitable. And I mean, I'm living in Tangier. You can't beat the weather. I mean, I grew up in Seattle. So the Mediterranean lifestyle, you know, that's a, that, that's a yeah. big bonus. Now, I, I mentioned uh, the king, Mohammed VI. Um, is that a little naive of, of me or, or it just seems he's popular? He's like... Um, He's like an enlightened despot. Does he have real power and is he just doing a good job with it? Yeah, I'd say we're living under like a benevolent king. You know, he's yeah. doing a very good job modernizing Morocco. Uh, he's not without his detractors. You know, there is, you know, a, a small minority of people who wish, you know, perhaps he was putting funds in different sort of programs and stuff. But hmm. overall, I mean, he, he's got the support of the country, the people. And yeah, you look around, he's doing a lot of great projects that'll bring Morocco really into the 21st and 22nd century. And tourism is a big part of the economy and people appreciate the stability and and, uh, things seem to be on the right track. And I'm really happy to be connecting with you right now to talk about going over the mountains. Now, Morocco is about the size of California. And to me, it's divided by... uh, you know, just like my state, Washington, is divided between east and west by the Cascade Mountains. Uh, Morocco is divided north and south by the Atlas Mountains, and the north would be Mediterranean-looking. Uh, the south is more towards the Sahara, right? Yeah, that's uh, it runs kind of northeast to southwest, so it's kind of diagonal, really. Okay. You know, because, so, yeah, mountains in the north as well. So a little bit like Washington State, but then put the Cascades yeah. and just tilt them a little bit, you know? <laughs> okay. And the, the point is you get a big difference when you go over the mountains. What kind of cultural and ethnic differences do you get when you cross the Atlas Mountains in Morocco? So when you cross the mountains, you'll be in a territory where you still will have nomadic and semi-nomadic tribes. Uh, that are visibly going to look different than some of the other people you've met along the way in terms of how they dress. And this is a region that was influenced heavily by the slave trade. So you'll see a lot more black Africans here versus like Arab Africans who are a lot whiter over here. And that has to do with the, the slave trade that happened and also immigration hundreds of years ago. 
and it still re- remains to this day. And my memory is you've got these amazing mud brick towns that kind of grow out of their surroundings. And uh, you've got these casbahs that are like melted sugar cubes over the centuries. Tell us some of the highlights of your sightseeing when you do cross those mountains. And, and the next stop, when you look out at the desert, it literally is Timbuktu on the other side of the desert. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that amazes me the most about this region is how green parts of it are. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we think of, you know, maybe like a scene from Dune or something with just sand dunes forever. But the Sahara is actually geographically very interesting in that you have these these lush palm groves just mm-hmm. jetting right through the middle of it. I think of green ribbons of, of ravines where there's a river and then all the the like scenes right out of the Bible, my image of what it must have been with people on camels and, you know, a fascinating little impromptu market scenes. Uh, it's just, it's a wonderland in so many ways, and it survives to this day. And biblical is kind of a neat way to think about it in a way, especially if you happen to know that uh, the oldest Jewish settlement in Morocco is thought to have been established right after the fall of the first temple, uh, right in this region of the country. You know, I learned about that. That was like in the first century, right? I think there's a lot of uh, Jewish culture that we'd be surprised to find in Morocco. Yeah. And as far as like when the Romans came here, so about zero AD or so, but the early Roman writings, they already found Jewish people living here with the Berbers, the local tribes, and already intermingled, already sharing languages and cultures. So they'd already been established here for likely hundreds, if not a thousand or so years. So if you were going to take somebody on a, like a three-day swing through the desert, over the mountains, and, and there's, I can remember from my trip as a backpacker, I can just even think of the names, Rasani, Erfoot, Kassar Souk, um, uh, Marzuga, Tinehir, and, and these names just stay in your mind because they're just so colorful and you just can't believe this still exists today. If you were going to design, and this is what you do for a living, uh, a three- or four-day excursion into this area, what would we experience? I think if you're lucky enough to travel at the moment when they're doing the date harvest in the fall, that's really special because all of these palm groves will be very busy with kind of farm labor where people will be crawling up the the date palms to actually be taking out just these bunches of dates. Um, and I didn't realize I loved dates so much until I moved to Morocco. <laughs> well, but, but this is, I mean, that is like a foodie treat right there. So if, like, hopefully we'll, we'll spend some time in the date palms. Um, and you can't come to the Sahara without actually going out to one of the great dunes, either Erg Shebi or Erg Shigaga, and experiencing a night in the desert, in the dunes. You know, now there's a lot of luxury camps that are very comfortable. And honestly, like for, you know, like $100, $150 a night, sometimes you can find a, a song of a place where you're going to lay out under the stars and see the Milky Way. And for those of us that are bound by the city, I mean, there's nothing like laying out on the dunes with just, you know, the heavens above you. This is, this is something every urban American needs to be sure they've done is to get away from city lights at night and see the Milky Way. Lucas Peters is joining us from his home in Tangier, Morocco, right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore getting out into the timeless Sahara. Lucas is the author and principal photographer of the Moon Travel Guides, Morocco, and Marrakesh and Beyond. His website is lucasmpeters.com. And Lucas, I'd like you to paint this picture better for me, this idea of glam, we say glamping, you know, glamorous camping. You can glamp in the desert, 
And uh, it's something that, you know, Moroccans who have the money enjoy doing just as much as tourists. What is this glamorous camping in the desert like? Just uh, describe it to us. Yeah, so if you can imagine the nicest tent you've ever been in and then make it nicer uh, with like a king-size bed that's very comfortable with like an in-suite bathroom. <laughs> In the middle of the is this, desert. Is this, it's not, it's kind of, it's semi-permanent. I mean, it's set up and then it's like a hotel room in the middle of the desert. Exactly. Yeah. And so usually you're going to have, um, the, all the camps are a little bit different, but like typically a, a camp will have anywhere from six to maybe 12 or 18 tents. Uh, they sleep four people, two people, mostly it's for couples. And yeah, they're set up to move every every few years. So usually the camp will be set okay. up and then, you know, once things kind of, disintegrate a little bit as the desert's prone to do. It's pretty harsh living out there. They'll move the camp a little bit. But if you step out in the middle of the night from your tent and you look up at the sky, you'll see a blanket of stars. I mean, yeah, you're looking at the you know center of the universe there. It's just every oh. time I, I'm lucky enough, most people get to do this once in their life. I'm lucky enough to do this two or three times a year. And every time I'm ah, out there, it's yes. just something else. You know, there's something magic about it. There really is. I remember being in one of these towns, I think it was Tinahir, and hired a car, and they took me across this. It wasn't sand. It was hard pan. It was like, it, it seemed almost like asphalt. And we were going out and saw literal mirages. I, I, it looked like a lake ahead of me, but it was just the sun glimmering on the hard pan. And then like dreams, there were camels just just silhouetted in the endless horizon. And then finally, I got way out there, and I realized if these guys were mean... I don't know where I am, and I don't know how to get back. Um, I, I have no idea wh- how they know where they are. I'm in the middle of this vast, like, parking lot with camels dotting the horizon. And then we got to the sand, and then we got to a little village, and then we had a chance to climb up onto those dunes, and we had a chance to glissade down, and glissading down a sand dune on your heels. First of all, to be at the very crest of the sand dune and look at these tiny little avalanches of sand that you can start from the very tip of a massive dune just with your finger poof and it goes down and it gathers more more momentum and it's like an avalanche of sand and then of course to glissade down it there's just these experiences that's my memory that i want to do again tell me about your sand dune fantasy so my uh, new fan well it's not a fantasy it's my reality i asked them to put me in a solo camp uh away from everybody so you can't do this in Urgshebi, but you can do this in Urgshigaga. That's a, kind of the more remote sand dune. So I, I said, hey, what's the experience like if I, we put this tent out in these other dunes where I can't see anybody? And so I woke up at, you know, 3.34 in the morning and I go outside the tent and stars as far as the eyes can see. And, and nobody, no sounds, no nothings, just me in the desert. That's it. And I was like... I, I hope they can find me in the morning. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You get there and you look around and you go, there's no hill. There's nothing to anchor your uh, perspective on. And it's just this vast, endless, hard pan surface. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that to me, I, I love, there's a sense of solitude that I seek when I go out to the desert that I find, yeah, there's something, I, I, magical is maybe not the right word for it, but there's something uh, intensely spiritual for me about that, about being out in the middle of, you know, this great creation we have and just having that communion, you know, for a moment. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, sadly, a lot of people never even get close to it in their lives. And if you do have that opportunity, 
get the most of it. I want to, before we wrap up our conversation, just a few things to help us have the vocabulary. Oasis. Is, do you actually go to an oasis? What is an oasis? So an oasis, yeah, they actually exist. But it's basically a, a spring of water that where water's under the surface of the desert. And it's a place where the water has found a way to come up. And there'll be palm trees, tamarisk trees, perhaps, around it. Uh, and you will find oases dotted around the Sahara. Okay, and camels. What are your advice for somebody who's hell-bent on riding a camel? Is that pretty straightforward, or are there some tips we should know? You should know it's really uncomfortable. That's what you should know. But uh, no, no, camels, uh, they're, they're all the one-hump variety here. So dromedaries would be the, if you're going to be, uh, I don't know, litigious mm-hmm. about it, it'd be a, a dromedary. But um, to get up on a camel, it's an awkward sort of mount. You know, it's not like riding a horse at all. Um, and I would say the other thing is if you're riding a camel for the first time, hang on, go with the flow, and remember that the camel knows what it's doing. So there's a horn, right? You're not not a, like a horn on his head, but a horn like on a saddle that you hang on to. Yeah, for most of them, yes. My experience is you got to be strong. you got to hang on to that horn, and you could fall off and break your shoulder. Yeah, people have fallen. It's rare, but people have fallen off broken arms and shoulders because uh, you are— I've had a, two friends that have broken shoulders on camels, and they're not wimps, you know, so you just—you got to— I mean, it's a serious thing. I yeah. mean, it's fun yeah. if you get on a camel, and it's just a, unforgettable, but but be careful. Yeah, hang on, because you are—it's it, a, it's a long fall. It's a long fall. Lucas Peters photographs, writes about, and organizes tours of Morocco at journeybeyondtravel.com. Lucas, it's been so fun talking to you about this, and we haven't talked about music at all. We're out of time, but I'd love to just wrap it up with uh, what kind of music might we enjoy when we go over the Atlas Mountains and into the desert country of Morocco. All right, so everybody should look up Ganawa music, G-N-A-W-A. Ganawa music is the music of the desert, and you can see it in a village called Hemlia, uh, which is spelled K-H-E-M-L-I-A. And this is near Murzuga. And this is known as the home of Ganawa music. And it's one of my favorite stops to do when I'm on that side of the mountains going through the desert. But what is the instrumentation? What does it sound like? Is it vocal? Is it drums? What am I going to hear? You're going to hear something you've probably never heard before in your life. It's very uh, idiosyncratic rhythms with uh, what they call crockheads, like a, a metal castanets. Uh, and you'll have some religious chanting. At the same time, someone will be on like a, a type of guitar. It's called a wutar or a gimbri. So it'll be a type of stringed instrument uh, with chanting and singing and these metal castanets doing a rhythm that you've probably not heard before. And you're probably going to be surrounded by people who are really into it and really know it, and it's going to be so new and foreign to you, you're going to just feel like, holy cow, this is an unforgettable cultural experience. This is why I travel. Lucas, thank you so much. Let's uh, wrap it up with uh, one phrase that we should know for a trip to Morocco. You have to know, salam alaikum. That's your salam alaikum. Yeah, that's your common greeting all around Morocco to wish people peace be with you, and that is what we say for hello, salam alaikum. And how do you say happy travels? Trek slama, trek slama. I'm learning Arabic. All right, thanks. Take care, Lucas. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. In 2006, its voters approved a referendum to separate from Serbia and become the nation of Montenegro. It includes an Adriatic coastline in the southern reaches of historic Dalmatia. I visited the resorts and sites centered around the Bay of Kotor on my first trip to Montenegro, 
Here's some of my impressions of what the place showed me, which I write about in my book, For the Love of Europe. My first stop in Montenegro was the Bay of Kotor, where the Adriatic cuts into the steep mountains like a Norwegian fjord. At the humble waterfront town of Perast, young guys in swimsuits edged their boats near the dock, jockeying to motor tourists out to the island in the middle of the bay. According to legend, fishermen saw the Virgin Mary in the reef and began a ritual of dropping a stone on the spot each time they sailed by. Eventually, the island we see today was created, and upon that island, the people built a fine little church. I hired a guy with a dinghy to ferry me out to the island, where I was met by a young woman who gave me a tour of the church. In the sacristy hung a piece of embroidery, a 20-year-long labor of love made by a local parishioner 200 years ago. It was exquisite, lovingly made with the finest materials available, silk and the woman's own hair. I could trace her laborious progress through the line of cherubs that ornamented the border. As the years went by, the hair of the angels, like the hair of the devout artist, turned from dark brown to white. Humble and anonymous as she was, she had faith that her work was worthwhile, and two centuries later, it's appreciated by a steady parade of travelers from distant lands. I've been at my work now for four decades, and my hair is also getting a little gray. I have a faith that it, my work, if not my hair, will be appreciated after I'm gone. That's perhaps less humble than the woman was, but her work reminds me that we can live on through our deeds. Her devotion to her creation, as well as to her creator, is an inspiration to do both good and lasting work. While traveling, I'm often struck by how people give meaning to their lives by contributing what they can. I didn't take a photograph of the embroidery that day. For some reason, I didn't even take notes. At the time, I didn't realize I was experiencing a highlight of my trip. The impression of the woman's tenderly created embroidery needed time to breathe, like a good red wine. That was a lesson for me. I was already moving on to the next stop. When the power of the impression did open up in my mind, it was rich and full-bodied, but I was long gone. If travel's going to have the impact on you that it should, you have to climb into those little dinghies to discover those experiences. The best encounters won't come to you, and you have to let them breathe. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.